You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 341 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. As y'all recall, we used the last show to talk about the morning of Thursday, July 2nd, 1863, and Robert E. Lee's decision to renew the battle of the previous day. When Lee awoke on the morning of the 2nd, he was determined to attack those people across the way, and the sooner the better, he would have thought, before the Federal Army had time to fully concentrate. But before he could pitch into the enemy, indeed before he could actually develop a plan of attack for the day ahead, Lee had to first find out exactly what kind of position the enemy had taken up. Here again, Lee would regret the absence of Jeb Stuart his most trusted and reliable intelligence gatherer. Since Stuart wouldn't arrive until later in the day on July 2nd, Lee was forced that morning to rely on several staff and other officers to perform reconnaissance duty. They set out that morning following Lee's instructions to both carefully examine the terrain and also fix the locations of the federal formations. Lee knew that the enemy right was well positioned on the high ground southeast of town, that is, on Cemetery Hill and Culp's Hill, so his main area of interest was the Union left. To find out exactly where the Union left was positioned, Lee sent out one of his engineers, Captain Samuel Johnston, who, along with Major John Clark of Longstreet Staff, set out just after 4 a.m. at daybreak riding south in an effort to fix the location of the left end of the enemy line. Captain Johnston's morning reconnaissance has puzzled historians and remains one of the greatest mysteries surrounding the Battle of Gettysburg. When Johnston returned from his scout to make his report to Robert E. Lee at the commanding general's observation post at the Lutheran Seminary, it was probably sometime between 7.30 and 8 a.m. As we mentioned last week, Lee had been joined there that morning by some of his subordinates, including Longstreet, A.P. Hill, and one of Longstreet's division commanders, John B. Hood. 
Lee had obviously been eagerly awaiting the captain's report and wanted to hear it at once, because Johnston recalled that when he wrote up, quote, General Lee saw me and called me to him. Johnston went on, saying, quote, The three generals were holding a map. I stood behind General Lee and traced on the map the route over which I had made the reconnaissance. When he pointed to Little Round Top, the smaller of the two hills at the southern end of Cemetery Ridge, Johnston described his climb partway up its slopes and said that he had seen no enemy troops from that vantage point. In fact, Johnston said, except for sighting several Union cavalry troopers riding up the Emmitsburg Road, he had seen no enemy troops at all while out on his scout. Lee wrote Johnston, quote, was surprised at my getting so far, but showed clearly that I had given him valuable information. Lee needed to be sure, however, so he pointed to Little Round Top on the map and asked Johnston, Did you get there? Johnston later said, I assured him I did. The information in Johnston's report was a key element in the plan Lee formulated for attacking the Union left on July 2nd. Unfortunately, the captain seems to have been mistaken about where he went that morning, and so his report to Lee was inaccurate. That meant that, like a house built on sand, Lee's attack plan was constructed using faulty information from Johnston's reconnaissance and on mistaken assumptions based on his own, that is Lee's, observations. As you might guess, that would all add up to nothing but trouble for the Confederates who were given the job of attacking the Union left on July 2nd. The debate over where Johnston went and what he saw during his morning reconnaissance is one of the most enduring mysteries of the Battle of Gettysburg, especially since Johnston was an experienced officer who would have been aware of the importance of making an accurate report to Lee. Although little was known about his life before his Confederate service, we do know he was born in Virginia in 1833 and worked as a civil engineer before the war. Records show that he joined the 6th Virginia Cavalry in 1861. He quickly came to the notice of Jeb Stuart, though, and in March of 1862, Johnston is listed as a second lieutenant and inspector general of outposts on Stuart's staff. Then Stuart recommended him as having, quote, remarkable qualifications for the post of military engineer, end quote and Johnston was appointed a first lieutenant in the Confederate Army's Engineer Corps. Military engineers did more than build or repair bridges or construct fortifications during the Civil War. They also served as scouting officers, which was their most common duty when in the field. Samuel Johnston seems to have excelled as a scouting officer, being mentioned for his energies and abilities in the official reports of a number of Confederate generals during the war, including Lee and Longstreet. Promotions in the Confederate Army's small engineering corps usually came slowly, but in August 1862, Johnston received a promotion to captain of engineers, along with orders to report to Lee's headquarters. 
Serving on Lee's staff during the Battle of Fredericksburg, Johnston is mentioned in both Lee's and Longstreet's after-action reports. Then at Chancellorsville, Johnston received mention by Richard Anderson for locating and then directing artillery fire on enemy positions. All of that's to say that Johnston would have known his business when he set out on the early morning of July 2nd on that scouting mission for Robert E. Lee. Nevertheless, when Johnston returned and made his report to Lee, that report was so flawed that it conveyed the false impression that there was a vulnerable Union flank where none, in fact, existed. That misconception, along with Robert E. Lee's own observations and assumptions regarding the position of the Union left, provided a faulty foundation for all of Lee's tactical decisions on the morning of July 2nd. And so, because of the stakes involved, it takes little prompting for students of the battle to start in on a spirited debate over the questions of where did Johnston go, what did he see, and what should he have seen. The crux of the issue is that if Johnston went where he said he did, then he and Major Clark of Longstreet's staff and several enlisted escorts would have somehow crossed ground that was guarded by Buford's cavalry pickets and then obtained a vantage point on Little Round Top that should have provided a view of a scene that was thick with federal troops on what was a very busy Union left flank that morning. As we said, it's one of the enduring mysteries of the Battle of Gettysburg as to just how Johnston's party could have bypassed Buford's cavalry pickets along the Emmitsburg Road and then reached Little Round Top without seeing any sign of Sickles' Third Corps or any other Federal troops. Whether he actually reached Little Round Top or mistakenly ended up on some other hill is more than we want to get into here on the podcast. But if you're interested in pursuing this matter some more on your own, we suggest you start with two articles in two different issues of the Gettysburg Magazine. In issue number 23, there's an article by David Powell titled, A Reconnaissance Gone Awry, Captain Samuel R. Johnston's Fateful Trip to Little Round Top. And then in issue number 29, there's an article by Bill Hyde titled, Did You Get There? Captain Samuel Johnston's Reconnaissance at Gettysburg. As Rich said, whether Johnston actually reached Little Round Top or mistakenly ended up on some other hill is more than we want to get into here on the podcast. But what we did want to do is, one, let you know that it's all a bit of a mystery, and two, that the important issue, at least to us, is realizing that Johnston's flawed report played a part probably a key part, in Lee thinking there was a vulnerable Union left flank where none, in fact, existed. While Johnston's reconnaissance didn't discover the location of the Union left flank, it did provide Lee with information as to where the flank was not, which, when added to Lee's own inspection of the enemy line from his observation post on Seminary Ridge, seems to have convinced the Confederate commander that the Federal line not only ended short of the round tops, but that the enemy position followed the line of the Emmitsburg Road for some distance south of Cemetery Hill, and that the Union left flank, there somewhere along the Emmitsburg Road, was up in the air, 
that is not anchored on any natural feature, but just dangling there, ripe for the picking. Based on those assumptions, Lee decided to use Longstreet in a main attack on July 2nd, designed to drive in the federal left, while Ewell demonstrated against Meade's distant right flank. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Johnston's report seemed to confirm what Lee had already suspected about the Union left, that it was in the air, exposed, vulnerable, and just waiting for a crushing Confederate flank attack. Visions of another Chancellorsville must have danced in Lee's mind. At Chancellorsville, just two months earlier, Stonewall Jackson had executed a wide flanking maneuver, marching his men to a position opposite the exposed Union right flank before crashing down upon it like an avalanche. The same thing, Lee almost certainly thought, could happen here at Gettysburg. Jackson was gone, and in his grave, of course, but Lee still had Longstreet. The majority of Longstreet's corps had arrived by this time, including all of McClaw's division and most of Hood's. Of Hood's four brigades, only Evander Laws had yet to arrive. Laws Alabamans awoke at 3 a.m. and started off on what would be an exhausting 24-mile march to Gettysburg, arriving there just before noon. Longstreet's final division, some 5,500 Virginians under George Pickett, had been left behind guarding the Army's trains near Chambersburg and wouldn't arrive in time to participate in any action on July 2nd. Longstreet didn't like the thought of going into battle without Pickett. He famously told Hood on the morning of the 2nd that it was like going into battle, quote, with one boot off. But Lee wouldn't wait for Pickett to arrive. Instead, he directed Longstreet to move with Hood and McClaws, about 14,500 men in all, 
and circle around to a spot from which they could drive up the Emmitsburg Road and come crashing down on the presumably exposed left flank of the Federal line. To make up for Pickett's absence, Lee would add in the 7,000 soldiers of Richard Anderson's division from A.P. Hill's Corps. Anderson, whose five brigades had been kept out of the action on July 1st, would be positioned on Seminary Ridge and was instructed to drive forward, straight ahead, toward the Emmitsburg Road and toward the center of the Union line on Cemetery Ridge beyond, providing the proverbial left jab after Longstreet's men had delivered the punishing right hook. With his division slated to lead the attack, Lafayette McClaws listened carefully as Lee explained exactly what he wanted him to do. On the map, Lee used his finger to trace a line that ran perpendicular to the Emmitsburg Road, somewhere near the Peach Orchard, telling the heavily bearded McClaws that he wanted him to place his division so that he would be in position to drive straight up the road and, quote, to get there if possible without being seen by the enemy. Hood's division, having followed McClaws' men, would form up in support of McClaws' drive up the Emmitsburg Road. Just then, James Longstreet chimed in. Perhaps he simply didn't appreciate Lee giving instructions directly to one of his, Longstreet's, division commanders. But whatever the case, Longstreet traced a line at right angles to the one indicated by Lee and one parallel to the Emmitsburg Road, telling McClaws that this is how he should place his division. Lee immediately snapped, No, General, I wish it placed just the opposite. At this rebuke, Longstreet, according to McClaws, quote, appeared as if he was irritated and annoyed, but the cause I did not ask. That exchange has always seemed a bit odd to us. After all, with the Union left flank supposedly where Lee thought it was, that is, dangling somewhere on the Emmitsburg Road, the instructions Lee gave McClaws made perfect sense. While it would make absolutely no sense for Longstreet to chime in and say that McClaws ought to position his men just the opposite, that is, parallel to the roadway. Other than to show that Longstreet, from the beginning, wasn't enthusiastic about the prospects of the attack Lee planned to make, and to show that Lee's patience with Longstreet's contrariness was wearing thin, this exchange is a bit odd. But, as far as we can tell, it's accepted as canonical by Gettysburg historians, so who are we to question that it actually happened? At any rate, Longstreet's role in the day ahead was only one part of the equation. The question of what to do with Yule still remained, so Lee next rode into town, where he met up with his 2nd Corps commander. Dick Yule had already toured his lines that morning with Major Venable of Lee's staff, pointing out the difficulty of making a major attack on his front. Nevertheless, when Lee met with Yule, the Confederate Army commander again seems to have brought up the idea of shifting Yule's troops around to the right 
to shorten the Rebel lines and to add the weight of Ewell's Corps to an offensive punch against the Union center and left. But again, Dick Ewell objected to such a movement, and again Lee relented. The Second Corps would stay where it was. But with one-third of the army, Ewell could not simply remain idle, so Lee instructed him to wait for the sounds of battle coming from Longstreet's attack and then launch a demonstration against Culp's Hill and Cemetery Hill. This diversion, at the very least, ought to prevent the Federals from stripping troops from their right in order to reinforce their left. But, Lee also said, if Ewell sensed there was an opportunity to turn his demonstration into a real assault, then he was free to do so. With that, Robert E. Lee made his way back to Seminary Ridge. In their efforts to absolve Robert E. Lee of any blame for the defeat at Gettysburg and place it instead on the shoulders of James Longstreet, many of Lee's defenders would later claim that Lee was angry when, upon his return, he discovered that Longstreet hadn't yet started his march. But it doesn't seem likely that Lee would have given Longstreet orders to do so before he first met with Ewell to discuss the role of the Second Corps in the fight ahead. Longstreet later claimed he didn't get the orders to start his flanking march until after Lee returned from his meeting with Ewell, and this makes sense, especially if Lee was still thinking about shifting the Second Corps around to the south. In addition, Longstreet's men would be taking up position to the right of Anderson's division, and so Anderson, necessarily, had to get his five brigades into position first, which wouldn't be done until shortly after 12 o'clock. Some of Lee's supporters later alleged that Lee was a bit irritated when he discovered that McClaws and Hood had been idle during his meeting with Ewell. But when Lee, sometime around 11 a.m., finally did give Longstreet orders to start his march, he just as soon gave in to Longstreet's urging that he await the arrival of Law's brigade before setting out. This begs the question, if Lee was upset with Longstreet for allegedly remaining idle, why would he have agreed to delay even further to wait for Law? In any case, it would take another 45 minutes before Law's hot and exhausted men finally did arrive, and it was already fast approaching noon when Longstreet got his men moving south on their flank march. Lee's plan, which had taken much of the morning to fully develop, was at last set in motion. But, as we'll see, things would very quickly start to come off the rails for the Confederate Army commander. That means it's time to start to wrap up this episode. Don't forget you can head over to the podcast website at www.civilwarpodcast.org and find links to the show's Twitter feed and Facebook page, as well as information about supporting the podcast on a monthly basis or making a one-time donation. Speaking of supporting the podcast, we want to thank the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade who signed up this past week over on Patreon. So thanks to Kevin, Mike, Douglas, Andrew, Ghost of Podcast Past, Chris, Victor, and Anthony. And thanks to Doug for his donation. 
All right, the curtain is coming down and the music is playing, so that means it's time to thank all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope that you join us again next time when we'll look at Longstreet's flank march and the surprise that awaited the Confederates at the end of it. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.